welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. We continue our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Luke, and we now come to the somber hours of Calvary. The sacrifice of Christ will be in this time for a few weeks. And we come in Luke chapter 23 to verses 33 to 38. Let us hear together the Word of God. And when they came to the place that is called the Skull, there they crucified him and the criminals one on his right and one on his left and Jesus said father forgive them for they know not what they do and they cast lots to divide his garments and the people stood by watching but the rulers scoffed at him saying he saved others let him save himself If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this somber, but as we're going to see, hope-filled portion of your word. May you speak to us about the depths of Christ's sacrifice and give us full hearts of worship and awe before him. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Well, as I mentioned last time, uh, Luke, the physician who was a disciple of Paul, uh, was an avid historian, an observer of history, and the documents that Luke wrote, the book of Acts, the Gospel of Luke, are regarded as some of the most trusted history of the ancient world. And that's not just by Bible believers, that's by secular historians as well. He is one of the most trusted historians of the time of Jesus, but he also is one of the richest because, as I mentioned last time, uh, Luke is one of the the richest describers of people. His experience as a doctor gave him that interest in the human condition, and you see some of the richest character descriptions in all of the Bible in his gospel and in the book of Acts. Uh, You might say he told the greatest story, which is the life of Jesus, with human stories. And so we're going to see a lot of those, and we've already seen some. Last week, we uh, were introduced to Simon of Cyrene, who suddenly was brought into history and into a relationship with Christ, we believe, by being pulled out of a crowd and told to carry the cross of a stumbling Jesus. And today we're going to learn more about the crowd of people that followed this drama from early that morning outside Pilate's courtyard till the last breath of Christ. We're going to learn more about the rulers, the corrupt men who orchestrated all of this, the injustice, the torment of it all, and their place at the foot of the cross and how they distinguish themselves in history with their wickedness. We're going to learn about some nameless soldiers and 
how they entered into all of this and went down in history in a remarkable way. We're going to learn as the, as the teaching continues over the weeks to follow about thieves, again, nameless, one who stayed on his journey to hell, but the other who turned and entered the kingdom suddenly and unexpectedly. There's a centurion we'll meet who witnessed all of this drama and had an unexpected encounter with who Jesus really was. And then a man named Joseph of Arimathea, a leader, a wealthy man who had been behind the scenes through all the injustice that Jesus suffered and who steps forward to take the body of Jesus and honor it in burial. And then the women who throughout the story that we're going to see over the next few weeks could never leave him, who were as close as they could safely be and whose sorrow, uh, the, they, who shared the sorrow of Christ in a unique way, leading all the way to Resurrection Day. So all of these are characters around the cross, and so I've decided to call the messages over this week and the next few weeks. Last week it was Tales on the Way to Calvary, and for the next couple of Sundays, including this one, Tales from Calvary. As we look into the story, it's clear that Luke tells the tragic story of the cross And he does it through the the story of the lives, the people that were there. So tales from Calvary. You might ask, what is Calvary? If you're a newer person to the faith, it's a term Christian use, but only insider Christians understand it. It actually has a pretty bleak history. Why do we call the hill on which, on which Jesus died Calvary? Why do we call the place where the great cross work was done Calvary? Well, It came from a Latin word which translated a Greek word. The Latin Bible, Calvaria, which gives us Calvary, was a translation of the Greek word in the New Testament here in Luke 23, which was cranion, from which we get cranium. And we see here that in our passage, it described a place called the place of the skull. That's how bleak and ugly the place where Jesus suffered was known among the people. It was a place somewhere outside the walls of Jerusalem where people were were crucified, executed by crucifixion. And so it was called uh, Cranion in the Greek language, which meant the place of the skull. The Latin translators of the Bible later called it Calvaria, which we get Calvary from. And that's found its way into the language of Christians. The Hebrew Aramaic word, by the way, if you're wondering, is is Golgotha. Now, we don't know the exact location of that place today. It was outside the city because the, the Jews believed that anyone disgraced enough to be executed had to be executed outside the walls of the city. It was probably a raised outcropping or a hill. It, it was known by tradition to resemble a skull, the the evidence tells us, but beyond that, we don't know. There's a place called Gordon's Calvary, which is a short distance outside of Jerusalem's northern old wall. Some think it's there that this all took place, but nobody can really know. But regardless of where it really was, the place of the skull, it was associated with unspeakable suffering and pain for everyone that went there, and without exception, everyone that journeyed there never returned. It was a place of ultimate death. And the characters that we're going to study over the next couple of weeks all, for their own reasons, gathered there or, as in Christ's case, were taken there. 
Bible teachers over the, the centuries have looked at the events that we're going to talk about over the next couple of weeks, the, the, the death of Christ, the cruelty surrounding it, the mocking surrounding it, and also the majesty that Jesus demonstrated within it. And they've said that Calvary is a place that became a theater of extremes. In other words, humanity's animosity toward God is never seen in the Bible in the darkest depths that it's seen here. But also God's mercy toward humanity is not seen in its greatness like it is here. It's been remarked on over the centuries. Both of them we're going to see in great clarity. H.C. Trumbull once said that Calvary shows how far men will go in sin and how far God will go for man's salvation. Watch for these things as I preach these texts to you over the next couple weeks. I saw them, and I found myself over and over again in my study, leaning back from my desk, closing the text, and simply adoring and worshiping Jesus. For all that he endured, but also all that he did for me. So I want to tell this story from the ta- for the, these tales from Calvary and in the way of telling a story. And today, I want to use three parts to tell the story. First, we'll, I'll give you the story of the scene because Luke introduces the place of the skull here and he introduces crucifixion, which is the physical drama that all this plays out around. And you need to learn some things about that because it's something that's unfamiliar to us in our modern times. After I tell you the story of the scene, then I want to go into the stories of the spectators. And there are a number of them. There's the soldiers, there's the rulers, there's the people and others that uh, find themselves in the lowest points you could, you could become around Jesus. Their stories tell a lot about man's sin. And then we're going to talk about the sublime words that Jesus brought. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And there we're going to see the story of the Savior. So let's look at this together. First of all, the scene at Calvary. There are two things that describe it. Immense physical agony and immense spiritual agony. Calvary was the location of both. Now many people have suffered physically over the ages of human experience. And the physical suffering that Jesus underwent was remarkable. It it could have been some of the most intense physical suffering any being has gone through in any portion of time. We'll leave that to history and eternity to settle. But the, the spiritual agony he experienced of becoming sin for you and I and of being separated for the Father was unique in, in, in an eternal perspective. No one, of course, ever tasted that but Jesus. You could say that, that the time spent on Calvary after the nails were driven into the body of Jesus were six hours with an eternity of spiritual agony wrapped into the middle of them. Six hours of physical agony until the point where Jesus gave up his spirit and received his death. But in the midst of it, there was an eternity of agony as God the Father forsook him. So let's take a look at both parts. The physical agony. You need to understand it because all those that received this gospel from Luke did understand it. Luke wrote to a Roman and Jewish audience... He wrote this gospel in the, in the 
in the mid-60s A.D., so a few decades after the events. But you may be struck, as I was, by how little a description is given of crucifixion itself. And all four of the gospel writers are like this. It's been noted that they all used very spare or sparse words to talk about crucifixion. Luke simply says what most of all of them said in verse 20, verse 33, when they came, this procession. You remember the procession going through Jerusalem, Jesus being too weak from the torture he'd gone through to carry the crossbar of the cross sufficiently. So Simon of Cyrene pulled out of the crowd, the crossbar laid on his back, him going behind Jesus as as the Roman soldiers led Jesus out of the city, and they come to the place of the skull. That, That procession in verse 33 now arrives. Simon of Cyrene is finally able to drop the crossbar down off of his back onto the ground, and and the crucifixion ordeal begins. All that is involved in that, which I'll tell you about in a moment, is summarized by Luke in four words, there they crucified him. They had a word for it in the language. They nailed him. They nailed him to the cross. It was all enclosed in one word that was commonly known to the time. So why were so few words used? Two guesses. One was because of the enormity of what they did. It was something that that the believers did not expand upon, and the Scripture simply states it in in its blank ugliness. But the other is because of the familiarity that Luke's readers would already have with it. As they said, he wrote to both Roman and and Jewish readers. They were well aware of this. The society had actually had a word, crucify. And so all of his readers understood exactly what was going on, and they had seen it many times. It may shock you to understand that the average Roman citizen had seen crucifixion more than once. They'd observed it. It was well known. Let me tell you a little bit about it and touch on both the familiarity and the brutality of it. I do not want to go into uh, a lot of the graphic nature of this. I've read some things this week which just made me pause and in grief over what the Lord experienced. And I'm not going to go into that. It would be too much. But I do think you need to understand, especially if you're newer to the Christian story, what he did go through and enough understanding that you'll understand the story to follow. Now, what about crucifixion, its familiarity and its brutality? It was familiar to the Romans because tens and tens of thousands of people were crucified in Roman society from about 100 B.C. to 100 A.D. It's interesting, crucifixion was not used except in the window of time in which Jesus arrived on planet Earth. Isn't that interesting? hundred years before his birth, roughly, and by within a hundred years after his crucifixion, in less than that time, it descended again and, and came out of use in the Roman Empire. But in the time of Jesus, it was heavily used by the Romans because it was so brutal and so ugly and so frightful that they did it in a public way. People were crucified always in public. No such thing as a private crucifixion. And crucifixion was done along the major roadsides throughout the Roman Empire. And it was done to tens and tens of thousands of people, often thousands of them at once lining the roads of Rome to show the average 
citizen and the average subject of the Roman Empire what happened to you when you violated Roman law. It was used as a tactic of threat and intimidation. It was hideous. To the average Roman citizen, it was the greatest fear that they would commit some crime that would allow them to be crucified. Most citizens were not allowed to be crucified, but in certain cases, exceptions were to be made, and you never wanted to be one of those exceptions. Cicero, the Roman writer, wrote this, quote, crucifixion is the cruelest and most hideous punishment possible, and every Roman should desire to keep his life and even his name away from it, end of quote. It originated uh, a few hundred years before the time of Christ in Persia and was used in different ways, but the Romans decided to perfect it and use it as a tool of intimidation to keep what was mostly a, a, a kingdom of slaves in line with Roman rule. They perfected it. They wanted to create the most brutal, the most agonizing, and the most lengthy death possible. And I believe they did it. There is no form of execution in the history of our experience as human beings that is as brutal as crucifixion was. By the time of Christ, it's estimated the Romans had crucified 30,000 people in Israel alone. Not a big country, pretty much the size of New Jersey. Can you imagine 30,000 bodies on posts around that country during Roman rule? Secular records tell us that after the Jews revolted later in AD 70, which I talked to you about last time, that they, the Romans crucified so many Jews as punishment for that that they stopped because they ran out of wood for crosses. So that's how prevalent it was. Now, in modern executions, uh, modern societies are, quote, civilized and humane, and they take the greatest pains to make death in an execution as, as nearly as possible to be instantaneous, right? That's modern executions. They're private and the death comes quickly and any kind of bungling of it produce, that produces any agony in a person, and that's something we become indignant about and horrified. It was exactly the opposite in Roman culture. They wanted the death to be prolonged and they wanted it to be torturous and they wanted it to be a human example. People that were crucified didn't die quickly. And in Christ's case, he gave his life up after six hours under God's design. But most of the victims of crucifixion lingered a day or maybe two or three. All on that cross going in and out of consciousness. Now, the, the, the idea of crucifixion as they developed it was, was brutal and it started before the cross was ever placed in the ground. As you know, and all the studies that I've seen indicate that before a person was crucified under the Roman system, they were scourged. And that happened to Jesus. After Pilate finally condemned him, he was taken down to a, into a cell below the palace of Pilate, tied to a post and scourged. And we know that that was hideous. The studies tell us that it was always done before crucifixion. There was braided, a braided leather whip with bits of metal and bone, jagged bone on the ends so that it would embed in the victim's back, come and pull flesh out more and more with each, each lashing to the where from the bottom of your neck all the way to your knees you were lashed and beaten and uh, it often resulted with deep contusions and lacerations in the back you could see into the ribs and, and it, it, it often uh, would, would take the life of a victim before they died through pain and blood loss and shock in Christ's case he went all the way through that 
And then they went further with Jesus. We know the gospel tells us that they took and formed a a crown of deep uh, thorns or long thorns and pressed it down upon his head so the capillaries burst and blood streamed down his face. Then they hit him in the head with a stick, which was uh, something they used to mock the, the... the, the, the stick that he would, the, the item he would hold as a king, and they spat on him and, and beat on him mercilessly, threw a robe on his back and then ripped it off before they put him on the cross to tear all the blood vessels open again. So Christ's loss of blood and shock would have been immense. He had to carry the cross piece up through, the, through the, the, the streets, as you know. He wasn't able to do that. Simon of Cyrene was taken to task and brought it up. And finally, up at the top of the place of the skull, the cross piece was thrown on the ground. And then they took the arms of Christ out and put them on the, the cross piece. Before that, there was offered to the victims a, a cup uh, of wine mixed with something called myrrh. And that was, that was a strong sedative designed to dull the senses. It was a, a mercy that, that they did, but it was also designed so a person wouldn't thrash as much being nailed to the cross. The Bible tells us Jesus refused that. Because as the perfect man, he would go through the agonies of his death for us with his eyes open, his senses clear. He would take it all. He would not let anything be held back. Refusing that sedation, he was thrown to the ground and the cross piece brought under him. And then six-inch nails were driven through the wrist between the two bones of the arm to hold the weight of the body. Then that whole apparatus was hoisted by four soldiers known as the cruciari, the crucifiers. And they would pull it up with a pulley and they would push it up at the same time and drop it onto the top piece of the cross which was already standing in the place of the skull and drop it with a thud onto a a post that would hold it. And then they would take his feet and bend them at the knee and with one spike through the tops of the feet nail his feet to the cross. Wrists nailed, feet nailed. And from that point, the victim had to push up to breathe on the, 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 the nails in the feet and pull on the nails in the wrists so that every breath could only be taken as the diaphragm was expanded and they were able to take in a breath and come down, come up again to let it go. And that's how you breathed and died. To survive, you'd have to push up and pull, push up and pull down on the wounds for every breath. The nails in the wrists would have crushed and severed the large sensory motor median nerves in both arms. And when those nerves are damaged, it's relentless pain that shoots through your limbs to the core of your body itself. The nails in the feet would have pierced the deep perineal nerve, the plantar nerve, with the same result. So vicious, relentless nerve pain through your feet and through your hands. The weight of the body pulling against each in an endless orchestra of agony. And so it began for Jesus. Both the, 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 the terrifying nature of crucifixion and the brutality were known to the people that saw it. And so here we have it. That's why I say it's hard for me to imagine any extended physical agony that any human being has undergone that matches this. That's the physical agony. The spiritual agony As hard as it is to imagine, for Jesus, the perfect Son of God, there was something worse that was yet to come in the darker hours of the cross work. 
And that was the fact that he would soon bear my sin and yours, become sin for us in the eyes of the Father, be made sin for us, and be abandoned by the Father. That was yet to come. James Stalker, in his long work on this, who's done tremendous work on describing the final hours of Christ, said the physical agony was just the beginning. It was not the deepest shadow. There was then in the heart of the Redeemer the knowledge that he was going to face a woe to which no human words are adequate. For now he was to die for the sin of the world. He would soon take on himself the guilt of mankind and be engaged in the final struggle to put it away and annihilate it. So the agonies of Jesus were both physical and spiritual. Now, all of this is enough for me. I don't want to go on anymore. I don't want to keep talking about it. Some of you may be sitting here saying, I don't want to go on listening anymore. That was too much for me already. What he went through for me physically, what he's going to go through for me spiritually are enough. But I have to tell you, God allowed something more. He allowed the added dimension of suffering that came from the people around the cross. The spectators, the words, the mocking made it even worse for the perfect soul of Jesus. The spectators, I think they're symbols of sinners. They're symbols of all of us. All of those he came to save, and we see them next. We shift from the scene at Calvary to the stories of the spectators themselves, and we now go farther in the description. And you see two things, apathy and hostility. You think about it, that's the range of responses that all lost people have toward Jesus Christ. Apathy or hostility. You'll find yourself somewhere on the spectrum. I know I didn't. So the passage, the, the, the sparse words in verse 33, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. By the way, that was intentional, putting Jesus in the midst of the criminals to show the disdain that Pilate had for him. Verse 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We're going to come back to the majesty of those words, but in order to put them into context for you, I need to go into the depravity of the next part that follows. Read with me. And the people stood, and they cast lots to divide his garments, the soldiers at the foot of the cross. We'll look at them in a moment. And the people stood by watching. We'll look at them in a moment. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, they introduced their depravity into all of this and their added agony to the suffering of Jesus. The soldiers watching them mock Jesus after a while, they pierce their boredom by deciding to join in the mocking themselves. They go from apathetic to mocking themselves, coming up and offering him sour wine and as though he were a king and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And above the head of Jesus, don't forget this, there was also an inscription over him sent by Pilate. This is the king of the Jews. So that's the, the, the scene of, of all that Jesus was surrounded by in those hours. And let's talk, take a look at the two things that it demonstrates about lost people. First of all, apathy. That's seen in the soldiers. 
Verse 34, he is crucified. All the indignity of what I just showed you, all the torment, all the horror of being nailed like that and raised like that and the beginning of the physical torture session that would go on for hours and hours, they watched all of that with complete apathy and after they had done their work, they simply uh, sat down a, a yard or two from the foot of that cross and gambled for his clothes. You can't get more apathetic, more detached, more compassionless than that. And Luke goes into, into, into detail here, as does John, to describe them, these cruciari, they were called in the Roman language, the crucifiers. Now, if you go to John chapter 19, you'll see this explained in a little bit more detail by John, who may have been standing afar off, but close enough to watch all of this. We know that John, along with Mary, the mother of Christ, and some of the other women that we'll learn about in the weeks to come, saw this perhaps from a distance. And in John's account, in John 19, verse 23, he gives us some more detail. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier. They were a quaternion in the Roman language, four soldiers uh, comprised a crucifixion detail with a centurion who supervised. So John, corrected the details of the period, talked about that. They crucified him, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. When you were part of a quaternion, when you were a cruciari, you had the right to the possessions of whoever you crucified in Roman law. And Jesus, when he was crucified basically had the basic articles of clothing that any Jewish man of the period would have. They were basically four things. There was a, a large outer garment, a robe, we would call it. There was a head covering. There was a belt that kind of sashed it all together. There was a pair of sandals. That's four things. But then there was an inner garment that he wore under the robe. It was known as a tunic, and that was seamlessly woven. And so there were four different things that each soldier could pick up, pick from as they took apart the possessions of Jesus a few yards from the bottom of the cross, but the tunic was rather special. It was nicely, it was well, well woven, and they would have to fight over it. And so desiring not to do that, by the way, it puts in a great distinction in the Bible when it says that he, he who was rich became poor for us. You want to know how low Jesus came in the human experience of humiliation for you. That's as low as he came. That's all he had left, and it was taken from him. And so they uh, decided to pull a set of dice out of one of their pockets. Gambling was a favorite pastime among Roman soldiers at that time, history tells us. And so they sat down a few yards from the cross, and they threw dice for that one tunic rather than tear it up. It's amazing to me the way God worked through history to order all of this, because not only were they... they, uh, doing something that to, to just get something selfishly for themselves, they were fulfilling prophecy. Because the Bible says in Psalm twenty two eighteen that they would gamble for his clothing. The Lord orchestrated even that fine detail 
into the experience of his son. John tells us that in verse 24. They said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. How amazingly sovereign that God would arrange for the tunic of Jesus to be woven in one piece. And for that moment to fulfill a prophecy hundreds of years before. Who was in control of the crucifixion of Jesus? Pilate? No. The soldiers? No. The centurion? No. The priests? No. God the Father. To achieve a great plan. But imagine the apathy of these people. They put Jesus through this agony. And I can imagine them chattering away a few yards from the foot of the cross and throwing the dice onto the ground and laughing. And a few yards away, the Son of God is atoning for the sins of the world. One author put it this way, what a picture. Them chattering and laughing and above their heads, not a yard away, that great, great figure of Jesus the Son of God atoning for the sins of the world, whilst angels and glorified spirits crowd the walls of the celestial city to look down at the spectacle, and within a yard of his sacred person, the soldiers in absolute apathy, gambling for these poor shreds of clothing, end quote. That's how it was. Their apathy is profound. Luke draws it very clearly, but also the hostility of the others. Now you go back to Luke from John. And we see next the people, verse 35, and the people stood by. Who are these? They're the crowd that had been part of this whole unjust process. They were the crowd that the leaders gathered early in the morning to to gather outside Pilate's judgment hall and intimidate Pilate through their mob anger to condemn Jesus. And now they've followed this procession, according to our message last week, all the way through the city, and they've gathered around the place of the skull because this execution was special because he was famous he was different they were caught up in what he'd done but they didn't understand who he was this was the same group of people that perhaps had welcomed him into the city some days before saying hosanna to the son of david thinking he was going to be a messiah to save them from roman rule and when that all evaporated their anger began to rise and they were the same people who went from hosanna the son of david to give us barabbas and now they'd followed him all the way out maybe there were some people in that crowd it's been noted who heard some of the great messages of jesus over the months before and had been intrigued by him maybe there were some who had seen miracles by jesus and been amazed by him but now they here they are just watching him and the scripture says there was the greek word it meant to just walk but watch with a fixed gaze to 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 look at at all that he was going through in a disinterested way They'd gone from Hosanna to the son of David to this. Matthew 27, we don't have time to turn there, but in Matthew 27 it talks about the fact that they went from apathy to hostility and they shared hostility too. It said as the, that some of them as they walked along the road in Matthew 27 derided him in verse 39, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you're the son of God, come down from the cross. So what does that tell you? It tells you that people can hear great messages about Jesus and maybe even learn about great miracles by Jesus, but if it never goes farther to conviction about Jesus and confession of Jesus, 
They don't know Jesus. Coming to conviction about him is when you come to know him. And they didn't. They were hostile to him. Not only they, but in the passage themselves, the rulers, their hostility is accented by Luke. But the rulers scoffed at him, verse 35. It's a unique word in in Greek. It meant to kind of stick your chin out and and just kind of lift up your nose at somebody like they're nothing. That was a fulfillment of prophecy, too. The psalmist said that's exactly what they would do to the Messiah when he died. So the rulers were scoffing at him, taking a look at all that they had done with their wicked work and shaming him even more. Talks about the fact that they dared him to come down from the cross. Matthew tells us that that was part of their words too. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. Matthew 27, 42, I believe. It's interesting. They too had heard about the miracles of Jesus. A lot of them had been on the crowds listening to the teaching of Jesus. They'd opposed the teaching of Jesus. And when miracles did happen, they said, oh, it's not by the power of God. It's by the power of who? The devil. They were totally, totally lost and corrupt. But they'd seen all kinds of miracles. And in essence, they were basically saying, how about one more miracle, Jesus? If you really are the son of God, come down off of that cross. In our text, in Luke, in, in Luke 23, 35, the ruler said, he saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. You know, I find that to be part of the heart of a lost person's response to Jesus. I know because I did it. How many miracles are enough? Just one more. When you're lost, you taunt God. And I I remember exactly where I was standing in the the food court at college when there was a guy that had tried to share his faith with me and among the many that I opposed and mocked. And I remember exactly where I was standing, the Coke machines behind him, as I looked at him and I said, if your Jesus comes down from heaven and walks into this room right now and shakes my hand, then I'll believe. I remember the defeated and sheepish look on his face. How different is that from this? I didn't understand it at the time, but I was literally looking into the eyes of a miracle because he was a guy that had come out of darkness into light. He was a guy that had now now loved this same Jesus that I was mocking, that now believed that this same Jesus was alive, had risen from the dead, and his life had been changed That's what he had just been telling me all about. I was looking at a miracle. In a way, I was looking at Jesus in a human life. But it wasn't enough for me. The mocking, the hostility. The Romans joined in. The soldiers also, verse 36, mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine. The word offered there could be used to offering something in the presence of a dignitary. And so they might have gotten a cup of wine and maybe put it on a stick or something and, and brought it barely up to the lips of Christ like if he was a king and they were in his court serving him as a dignified ruler, bringing it all the way up to his lips and all taking it away and mocking him as well. 
And forget not that there was also somebody who was there by proxy, and that was Pilate. Look at the last verse, verse 38. There was also an inscription over him mocking him. This is the king of the Jews. Remember I told you last week when a person was crucified, uh, a sign was given to the procession to the Roman soldier in front that talked about the offense of the, the one to be crucified. And that's what, of course, happened with Jesus. And Pilate ordered that to be written in a certain way. This is Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. Why did he do that? It was one way to get back at the Jews who had humiliated him. It was a payback. Someone once wrote, it was a drop of bitterness into their cup of triumph. He knew that they were unjustly con condemning Jesus. He knew they hated, them, hated him to the core. He knew that they'd humiliated him and pushed him into a public corner in order to condemn an innocent man. And so he made the, the placard read with words that they would hate. This is the king of the Jews. In fact, they got so enraged, the Gospels tell us they sent a delegation to, to Pilate to ask him to change the wording and say, no, no, right, right, that he said he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate said, what I've written, I've written. Pilate was saying that as far as Rome is concerned, this is what becomes of a Jewish king. This is what Romans do with him. Beware and be ashamed. It's interesting in that, that uh, the inscription was written in three languages, Hebrew and Greek and Latin, one line under the other. Why was that? We don't know, but we imagine because this was Passover, there were people coming from all over the, 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 the Roman world to come to Jerusalem for Passover, and they spoke different languages, and they were from all levels of society, and perhaps Pilate intended to heighten the insult and make sure that anybody walking along that roadside on the way to Passover could read that sign in his own language. And the Jews would be thoroughly humiliated, and Jesus would be thoroughly humiliated. People have observed that Hebrew was the, the language of religion in Israel, Greek was the language of culture. It was the street language. It governed everything about human culture in that period. And Latin was the language of law and of politics, the Roman government. Pilate wrote it in all three ways. Some have said that it's interesting to note that all three crucified Jesus, the Jews in their religious hatred, the, the culture in its sin, and the Romans in their superiority. And they mocked him as a king. But you know, he's a coming king. He's a coming king. I find it interesting when he returns visibly to this earth in Revelation 19. He will have a title. What will it be? King of kings. And Lord of lords. He'll return. The scripture tells us that a day in the future every knee will bow and declare that Jesus is what? Lord. All the knees of those that mocked him will bow too and Pilate's will be among them. And so here now is a gathering of injustice, of abuse, of torment, of apathy, and of hostility. And what was the response of Jesus? Go back in your passage to the very 
second verse. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Let's finish by going from depravity to majesty. The story of the Savior. Two words, astounding grace. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I mean, I've just told you one of the, the worst, if not the worst, stories of human depravity and evil and gathered in an afternoon that you could ever imagine. And now I've just read to you what may be the most astounding response to human evil uttered, ever uttered by any human being. I told you at the beginning, Calvary showed man's deepest evil, but also God's deepest mercy. Jesus responds with what I call astounding grace, and I call it astounding grace for a number of reasons. Here they are. First of all, it fulfilled prophecy. You know, Jesus could have answered all of his accusers from the cross. You know that. He could have spoken to them. They were within earshot. He could have answered all their taunts with the truth about who he was. But Jesus spoke several times throughout the hours of the cross, and he chose not to respond with anything but this, as he began, Father, forgive them. I find it interesting that the Scripture says that that is the way he would be. The Scripture said when he was reviled, he reviled not again. Isaiah said he would be as a sheep before his shearers silent, opening not his mouth. He was submitted to the Father's plan. He fulfilled it all the way. Secondly, it portrayed God's sovereignty. He says, Father, forgive them. It's interesting that Jesus Christ looked to the Father throughout all the agonies of these hours. Who did he speak to in Gethsemane? Father, if it be possible, remove this cup from me. Father, Ava, in the closest intimacy of the Trinity. The Father was with him all the way through the great work of salvation, except for that bitter portion right toward the end when he had to forsake his son. But when that portion was over, at the very end, Jesus said, Father, again, into thy hands I commit my spirit. So, it shows me that Jesus and the Father were in perfect, perfect unity in this great work of salvation and this long path of suffering. Nobody took the life of Jesus. He said, no man takes my life from me. I give it. I and the Father have a work of salvation to do. Thirdly, it, it's an astounding statement of grace because it shows man's great need. He says, Father, forgive them. Some people have looked at this and said that he's asking God to exempt them. No, he says, forgive them. And it's the Greek word, me, which was a very strong word. It meant to take their sin and throw it from you. me, throw it afar away, out of your sight. Father, you've got to do something with this, he was saying. Their sin is so great and so deep that you must forgive it. A way must be found to, to cast it away from your holy presence and your holy gaze and your just heart. 
You've got to find a way to hurl this away and out of your sight and cast it. Man was in great need at that moment. He needed deep, eternal forgiveness. This also shows man's great peril. Jesus said, for they know not what they do. It's been difficult to understand this as we interpret this passage, and there are many different people that look at it with different views. I'd remind you that this was not an exemption. Some people teach that he was exempting the soldiers at the foot of the cross because they were just doing their job. I don't buy that because Jesus, according to the Greek language, was saying this repeatedly throughout his, his hours in, on, in the cross. The language says he said it over and over and over again. And the way Luke wrote it, the, all the people that are involved, it, it's everyone who's involved in the human ugliness of the cross. So I don't think it was an exemption just given to the soldiers for that kind of sin. And besides, a lot of the people at the foot of the cross knew exactly what they were doing. The soldiers didn't know much. Pilate knew more, especially after he questioned Jesus and became more convinced that there was something about this man. Pilate did it with hesitation. The people outside Pilate's courtyard and around the cross knew even more because they'd heard Jesus preach and watched him work his miracles, and they'd had time over the months to contemplate his ministry and who he could possibly be. Oh, they knew even more about what they were doing but the priests knew even more because they knew the scriptures and they knew the prophecies and they knew that Jesus was fulfilling all of them to the letter and that he must be Messiah, but he wasn't the Messiah they wanted. And of course, the one who knew just about it all was Judas who started the entire entire thing. Judas who'd been with him, who'd been a friend, who'd been as close to Christ as you could be. So... No, they, they knew quite a bit. It wasn't an exemption. But perhaps it's also really more of an explanation. He says, they know not what they do. Perhaps he was saying, their sin is deep, but even they don't know how deep this really is. Even they don't know how eternally at risk they are. Even they don't understand the fullness of it. But Father, we do. And a pathway of forgiveness needs to be bought for them. And this is where God's great love is shown. It's as if the son is saying to the father, Father, they must be forgiven. And the father would say, I know. That's what we're about to do. The wrath will be coming soon. Hold on. And soon it'll be finished. In the words of verse 35, his own accusers might have captured that. He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God. And, and you, you understand that exactly the opposite had to be true. Because he was the Christ of God, in order to save others, he would not save himself. Could Jesus have come down from the cross? Of course he could. He had said, don't you know I could call down 12 legions of angels in this hour? But this is that all should be fulfilled. What? 
the plan of God to save you. It went on through the forsaken hours, but then finally when Jesus declared it is finished and into thy hands I commit my spirit, forgiveness was purchased and the great plan fulfilled. Others have noted that the prayer of Jesus began to be answered pretty quickly, and you may, I've, I've taught on this before, so you know where I'm going. Did some of the people that were around the cross that very day experience an answer to that prayer? Did they experience the forgiveness of God through the sacrifice of Jesus? Oh, yeah. After the sky turned black and the earth quaked, and Jesus gave his spirit to the Father, the centurion who headed the cruciari looked up at Jesus and said, truly, this was the Son of God. I believe he's in the kingdom today. Hours later, when the thieves' lives finally expired, one went to heaven, didn't he? He stepped into paradise. And of course, some 60 days after that, Maybe there were some people in that crowd, some of the priests on the fringe of the crowd who heard Peter go preaching in Acts chapter 2. And maybe they were among the people that said, after they were struck by the Spirit over what they had done, what shall we do? And they were saved. Tales from Calvary. What kind of story do they tell? I think Trumbull was right I, when he said that Calvary shows how far people will go in sin and how far God will go for man's salvation. But this whole story changed history for you if you'll look to that cross. Alexander McLaren, the Scottish preacher of the past, said the cross is now the center of the world's history. The incarnation of Christ and the crucifixion of our Lord are the pivot around which all the events of the ages revolve. And Eric Sauer in his book, The Triumph of the Crucified, said this, of all times, it is the turning point of all love. It is the highest point of all salvation. It is the starting point. And of all worship, it is the central point. Calvary. So where would you find yourself in the story? If you don't know Jesus today, are you apathetic? Are you playing dice with your life and not even caring about his death. Oh, my friend, I encourage you to look again at him. If you don't know Christ, but you're filled with hostility, anger and contempt and scoffing like all those leaders, understand that that's a symbol of your desire to be God, and it's what will condemn you forever. Come to him. But if you're a believer, then you ought to be awestruck. As I was many times this week, I call you to worship.